Hi guys, welcome to Jules and Phoebe, the weekly pop culture and social commentary podcast brought to you by yours truly, Jules and Phoebe. Hey Phoebe, how are you? Hey Jules, how are you? I'm good. Busy, busy week. Oh my God, I feel like it's also sweltering in London today. I, I'm not one of those people that complains when it's hot. I like embrace it. Oh my God, I'm so ready for it to be winter. <laughs> oh no, no, no. I'm super happy that it's warm. Like I love September because I just love the fact that it's usually quite warm and dry. I love autumnal weather if it can hit the right mix, but I love it when you can start to bring a coat out, basically. <laughs> yeah, I think that's more October then. Yeah, that's when I'm at my most powerful. Okay. When it's dark, when it's cold, I'm like, yeah, this is this is my time. Special season. <laughs> How is everything else? What's new? Oh, man, I had the busiest week last week. So as part of my MBA, Warwick University do a thing called Warwick Week. So it's a distance learning program. But for two weeks in the semester, in September and April, they basically host in-person lessons. So the idea is that it gives you an opportunity to network, meet people from your class, meet your lecturers. They do dinners, things like that. Obviously, with COVID, that did not happen in the same way this week just gone. And from a kind of a, I don't know about you, I can be quite miserly with my annual leave. So I really didn't want to take a week off for the sake of webinars that I would just be attending from home. So I just said, okay, you know what, I'm just going to work my work calendar. So I'll start work a bit earlier. I'll finish a bit later. I'll do my meetings in between these webinars. And it was really rough. (laughs) It was not a good idea. So we got like a kind of sped up introduction to economics and accountancy and finance for businesses. But my undergrad is in psychology and languages. And so it was a real baptism by fire. And I was talking to one of the guys in my kind of smallest study group during the week because he and I are working on a portion of our economics group assignment together. And he said to me, oh my God, I can't even imagine how stressed I'd be if I also had to study for accountancy this week because he's an accountant. So somebody else in the study group has got two degrees in economics. Somebody else works in operations management was the module we did before this. This guy's an accountant. And I was just like, oh, Nick, this is literally every module that we do will be me starting from scratch with it. So, so by the time Friday rolled around, I was just completely exhausted. But can't you get a study break? I actually don't. I think you can get exam breaks, but for the sake of study. So I think I may need those days later on in the semester and kind of was a bit scared to use anything up too early. In hindsight, it was the completely wrong choice. Like I was so exhausted that, and I typically don't, you've heard me talk about beauty treatments that I get done enough on this podcast. They're usually quite invasive. They're not that comfortable. It'll be like lasers or chemical peels or something or other. And I ended up just going for an actual relaxing facial for the first time in quite a few years. And I just fell asleep immediately. (laughs) Yeah. So that's what my week has been. Just a lot of brain trauma, basically. (laughs) But how do you plan to manage your time a bit more effectively? I think next time this happens, I'll just take the hit and take the time off because my workflow is never unduly affected. I'm usually on top of, if not ahead of the game with work. But this year has been so strange that all of my annual leave has already been spent 
on non-holidays because everyone needed a mental break at some point or another over lockdown, right? And I just couldn't bear to take off another week's holiday. Bearing in mind I only get 20 days a year to sit in the office in my house. (laughs) I just thought I'll be so depressed. But can't you ask your job for study leave? I think probably moving forward I should, but I'm hoping that by the time the next Warwick week rolls round, will actually be able to attend in person because that will be next April. I mean, who knows? (laughs) Yeah, hopefully. I mean, it's not guaranteed, but hopefully by next April, there could be some face-to-face time. Oh my God, I'm really hoping so. Can you imagine? This would have gone on for a year by next April. Yeah, but I think what I've realised is that, I mean, in the UK, people are still seeing people. It's not Hmm. that strict. No, it's true. Although... And we talk about this particular Instagram a lot on the podcast. No Small Talk posted something really interesting on their story the other day where they were saying, you know, basically Citibank, Deloitte, Metrobank, Barclays, whatever, they have all said we're working from home indefinitely. And so as ever, it is the people who do these kind of, I guess, what you would call quote unquote menial jobs that are being encouraged to go back to work and come back into working with others as though we're completely back to normal and everyone's safe again. And you realize that it is the upper echelons, basically, who are keeping themselves safe at the expense potentially of other people. Like we can send schools. You made the point, I think, earlier on in the summer about, say, Eton and how it's so different when they send students back to school because of the teacher-student ratio being like it's one teacher for every eight students or something, I think you said. Mm. I guess that was not me. I didn't give that ratio, but I've heard that like around. So I, I can't claim it, but yeah, like, yeah. I've heard that literally, of course, <laughs> the ratios are so like incomparable to like the ratios in state school. But yeah, but hopefully you can just figure out how to make sure you can work through your workload Mm -hmm. without putting unnecessary stress on yourself. Yeah, for sure. I think that there's a level of imposter syndrome that goes with it where you think like, oh, I don't really have the right to be kind of making a song and dance about this. Like I should just get on with it because if I attract too much attention to myself in terms of complaining about workload, for example, it may just become a thing where it's like, oh, she's clearly not cut out for this. In terms of your program or in terms of... I think think that that is just one of those things that I'm thinking about constantly, be it the program or be it work. And I think so much of the time, a lot of my network are women who are kind of similar to me in nature in terms of their ambitions and their drive and things like that. And actually with a group of people from the MBA, I was having a discussion about disparity in terms of workloads for women, because invariably women end up taking on more in the home, even if you don't have children things like workload division in terms of the day-to-day laundry, food shopping, things like that, tend to be perceived as more female-driven tasks and tend to be taken on disproportionately by women in the home. And this has been written about extensively. So I can't even remember how this came up. Was it in the context of leadership? But I kind of shared my thoughts around that and how things like maternity leave are barriers to women getting to the same point, yada, yada. And one of the guys in the group said to me, yeah, it seems like you're just thinking about this a little bit too much, actually. You've gone too deep on this. And and nobody else said anything either. And so I was left feeling so kind of embarrassed straight away because I thought, oh, God, have I been ranting, basically, was the way he put it. And so then you think, oh, okay, well, listen, I better keep my mouth shut then. I think the pressures that women put themselves under to be the full 360 
it's just a very real thing regardless of your age where you are in your career you know yeah I agree I think women put themselves under so much pressure to like perform or be perfect Mm -hmm. in every area of our lives all the time yeah and so yeah that's a really tough thing to manage I mean as far as imposter syndrome is concerned what do you do to work through that I have some of the worst imposter syndrome of anyone I know you have some of the worst imposter syndrome of anyone I know (laughs) I can I can confirm that but I just don't understand why I don't even know how to begin working on it how does one work on it how do you work on it you could get a coach. I think, yeah, a coach, that could be a good shout. I feel like I get so in my own head. I'm sure that other women listening, I'm sure that other people listening to this must feel the same. But I find, and I was saying this to someone recently, I find, in fact, it was my mum that I was saying it to because I was talking about my career and what I'd like to do, that I can get bogged down in a five-year plan because I'll be thinking, okay, well, for example, MBA program, two years. I would like to have a baby at some point in the next five years, but when can I do that? Maybe if I change jobs, if I get a promotion at some point in the next couple of years, I'll need to be doing that job for at least X amount of time. I still need to get the tiling in the kitchen done. What are we going to pay the spare bedroom? Things like this. So... I don't know if everyone spirals in the same way. I have to assume they do to an extent. On my run this morning, I'm a big fan of Coach Bennett, obsessed. He's like Nike's head running coach. And the guided runs on Nike are just such a great opportunity for you to improve your running, but then also just be grateful for like every run, like just be grateful Mm -hmm. for the fact that you can actually get up and start. So I'm a big, big fan of the guided runs on Nike. And on the run today, he was saying like athletes or people that are participating in sports are so happy to see their friends and their colleagues and their family members succeed Mm -hmm. and they'll be cheering them on. But like you also need to take the time to celebrate yourself. Yeah. for Everything that you're achieving. And I think especially for women, it's so hard to say, wow, I smashed it. Yes. Oh, for sure. I say it more freely than others. But it's still not easy to just acknowledge like, wow, I've I've smashed it. And it's something I've just become so conscious of that when I do hear people putting themselves down, I find it (laughs) off-putting. Because I feel like the world is already kicking your ass and putting you down. For you to use your infinite energy Mm -hmm. to put yourself down. It's a waste. It's a waste. And... I want to become more mindful and disciplined in really celebrating all of my achievements. Yeah. Right. And not waiting for somebody else to say, wow, you've done it. Wow. We're going to give you this for achieving this. No, that's not how life works. For sure. You don't want to put yourself out of the game mentally. Mm -hmm. Like wait for somebody to say no. Yes. Before you saying, oh no, I can't ask for this. Why can't you ask for this? No, for sure. You're so right. The mentality of it is so important. Having the courage to ask is so important. Guys, I would love to know anyone's tips on overcoming imposter syndrome or how you deal with it in your own day to day as well. So please feel free to message us on that front too. Yeah, let us know what you're doing. Personally, I really am a big fan of coaching. And when I had a career coach and I've had two, there's just so much value in having somebody help you justify why you think you shouldn't ask for something Mm -hmm. why you think you need to do x to get y when you're already performing like to have somebody just kind of be objective and like ask you these questions so if you say oh five-year plan why (laughs) what does that even mean (laughs) 
Yeah. Right? People true. say, oh, I want this job in five years, but why can't you go and get that job today? Yeah, it's true. It is true. I think that if you are of an anxious mentality, though, so if you were to say, well, okay, whatever extreme job is, why don't you just get that today? Then I'd be thinking, okay, so that brings the plan forward by three years, which means <laughs> actually the 10-year plan also now has to become a seven-year plan, which becomes like, it's a very toxic mindset. And I think that people talk a lot about visualizing and verbalizing things that you want to achieve or putting them out into the universe. But honestly, if you are of an anxious predisposition, which I am, you get very trapped by the plans that you make for yourself very quickly. And so I think in an ideal world, right, you'd have a mix of both where you think, okay, I'm aspirational. This is what I want to work towards. However, I am fluid. Things may not always progress in a linear fashion. And that's, I think, a difficult one to balance, I would imagine, for most people. But Yeah, I think that is very, very difficult to manage. I think one of the biggest lessons just with the times that we live in, so if we think about living through a pandemic, people who, and it's not just people, it's companies, it's institutions. Mm -hmm. If you are not fluid, you will not survive. Yeah, it's so true. You just will become so anxious by the pace of change Mm -hmm. that, you just will not be able to compete and you will not be able to survive because there's so much change. So I think it's very important for us to just like embrace the fact that so much is out of our hands. So what can you control and focus on what you can control? I actually know. Yeah. So for me, I know I can control running a hundred kilometers a month. Mm -hmm. That's the only thing really in my control. Yeah. And so that's why I do it. Because I'm like, oh, in the morning, great. I've done that. I have this win. Yeah, And now the rest of the day, calls might be cancelled, deals might be falling through, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. And you can't control your performance really and the things that you achieve, but you can control your attitude. Yes, absolutely. I think another one that I would be so keen to kind of expand on or discuss more, might have to see if we can find an amazing guest for this, but it's like sometimes I think that women in particular have such a inability to talk about things that they actually want to manifest so for example when someone says to me well what is your dream job I actually don't know what my dream job is I know I like people and actually I know that I like money and I know that I like earning good money and I want to continue to grow the amount I earn however in a very real sense if you hear a guy saying that it's like yeah Jordan Belfort whereas if you hear me saying that it is jarring. I think that people think it's a bit in bad taste when women say, you know what, I'm financially driven and that's important to me. And mm-hmm. I think true. It is in bad taste. Um, in bad taste. <laughs> no, but I mean, like so much is in bad taste. Mm-hmm. And it's like everybody that's successful, they're just in bad taste. Yes. Gosh, actually, like, that's a great way of putting it. You know, you don't get to where you want to get in life by doing what everybody does Mm -hmm. I don't know there must be some term for it like the way we just put ourselves down as women what is their term Mm -hmm. for it I well I feel like just before we jumped on record I was saying to you that it was self-deprecation and you were like no this has gone to a whole other level now (laughs) it is because self-deprecation has become so permissive like up the ante do you know what I mean it's like oh well I just want to be clear like I'm being self-deprecating it's a way to undermine your own authority really 
Yes. And I think with women, it's all about likability, right? So if we are too ambitious, we feel that people won't like us, Mm -hmm. but you would rather people respect you and say, wow, Phoebe's great at ABC rather than Phoebe's a nice girl. Like that money you want, no one's going to give it to you for being a nice girl. Being nice. It's so true. And it's tough because actually from an anxiety perspective, I really do want you to think I'm nice. I'm going to try really hard to make sure that when I meet you, you think I'm nice, but you are right. Like nice doesn't pay your bills. Yeah. So that's something that you have to work through because Mm -hmm. you know yourself. Like, I mean, you are nice, right? Like you're you're not a mean person, but not every single person you meet is going to like you. Mm -hmm. And that has, you have to be okay with that. I think you're right. I think when you inspire that, you (laughs) just beigeify yourself. (laughs) <laughs> that is such an excellent term like don't beigeify yourself like I feel I'm on the opposite end I had a very awkward interaction with like the girls I do French with we were just having a chat and then it pivoted to politics and then we ended up talking about like gender race and like diversity and like one of the girls was not really pro-diversity interesting wow and I just went crazy <laughs> I was just so direct, 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 direct with my point of view Mm -hmm. in a way that was like socially unacceptable. (laughs) Like I was like, you're alt right. (laughs) Oh, 100 years in the past. Yes. How jarring for her to have heard that, I would imagine. She said to me that I had upset her feelings. And then I said, obviously, I don't want to upset your feelings, but we're talking about structural issues. Yeah. So if we're focusing on like the individual, like your feelings, I feel like that really distracts from the fact that we're talking about structural issues that can be life or death. 100%. Like this isn't an opinion as such. Yeah, it's not about opinion. This is not about the individual. I feel that's a distraction. But like that is socially unacceptable in polite society to call someone alt-right. No, it definitely. It definitely is. And you're right because I think it's interesting because it shouldn't be. But I think so much of those kind of discussions, it's almost like it's okay to call someone alt-right behind their back, but it's unpalatable to say to them, listen, you are exhibiting alt-right behavior right now. (laughs) Exactly. So I'm at like the opposite end. Right. Where I'm like, if you don't like me, I'm not going (laughs) to (laughs) die. Ah. <laughs> I'm, I'm Gucci. <laughs> that, that is so true. Um, some of my friends call it the snip snip, where it's like, oh, listen, at this stage in my life, I will just be like, snip, it's fine. And I won't worry about it again. I'm happy to keep a small circle. Yeah. So, my husband has the complete opposite behavior where he would just sit there and like, listen, listen, listen to like the alt rightness oh. and like not react. And then after, yeah. be like, I'm done with that person. Ah! Like, there's no need to confront this type of behavior. Right. Whereas mm-hmm. I came out like a dog at the races. Yeah. Like I listened to like one comment, all right, fine. Like, it's the second comment, fine. By the third comment, I'm like, not on my watch. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I bet that there were other people in the group. Like I think in a lot of situations, people are waiting for someone to say something. Mm-hmm. And you can maybe speak to whether or not this happened for you. But like when you did... Did anyone else chime in or did anyone else do that thing, you know, where they speak to you afterwards and they say, thank you for saying something. And you think, oh, I was actually out there on my own. So thank you for messaging me privately 
afterwards to let me know that you supported me calling out racist behavior how strange no there were two other girls there and they were saying in a more socially acceptable way that they agreed with what I was saying okay right right so they were like okay we see where she's coming from yeah and then I felt so bad because I was like this was meant to be a polite hangout we do a French class together like we're not like personal friends well, and I let it go like we were friends from primary school. <laughs> but the thing is that there are two sides to that. And obviously part of me here is taking your side because we are friends. But also I feel in that situation where somebody else has also come into the group dynamic and as much as you're saying, oh, we all know each other from French, we're, we're not primary school friends. Well, she is in that exact same situation. But for whatever reason, she's thought that her dropping racist here and theirs or alt-right here and theirs is acceptable with acquaintances but you telling her that she's all right alt-right not all right <laughs> alt-right is unacceptable because you're acquaintances so it's interesting that that cognitive dissonance can take place like yeah and with sort of some of these views like when people deny social inequities mm-hmm. they're so polite mm. Okay, they're not rude, like they're very polite. They speak in a very measured way. And obviously, whenever you discuss something that you are passionate about, you displaying passion like almost discredits you. Yes. And then she said to me, if I express myself in a more polite way, I would be more successful. And I believe that's a con. Like, I believe that is the biggest con. I believe respectability politics are the biggest con. Mm -hmm. And so they always say to women, oh, if you are nice, you'll get this. No, you won't. (laughs) Oh, if you don't say this, you'll get this. No, you won't. It's it's, mm-hmm. it's the biggest con and it's a part of that right-wing conservative way of thinking. And I, think right. I was very triggered by it. I was like, no, my watch. No, not today. Not Jules. It's so interesting, isn't it? Because I do think you're so right about respectability politics as well. When you see, I always think that in a very kind of superficial way, if Boris Johnson was Labour, he would be eviscerated because of how slovenly and unkempt he looks. And I know that people say things like, oh, he messes up his hair on purpose. He wants to seem, you know, jovial or, you know, jocular. He's like your funny uncle or something like that. Same way with Donald Trump, his poorly fitting suits, his fake tan, the toupee, like respectability politics is a con because if it wasn't, people on the liberal left would be able to also conduct themselves in a slovenly mishappen way like you think about how much AOC gets completely torn apart for wearing a white suit or for wearing lipstick red lipstick and you think hmm actually she's immaculate so I don't know it's it's an interesting one but it's an interesting one and it's always used to control the left Mm -hmm. somebody on the right can be very direct Mm-hmm. with you look at Trump he says what he wants mm-hmm. Boris is out here calling Muslim women in the niqab saying they look like letterboxes like they mm-hmm. say whatever they want but then if you say you are alt-right yeah oh my gosh ineffective mm-hmm. so that was a very interesting oh, one yeah it, it's things like that that make me feel I was a bit more conscious of perception I think I am professionally but mm-hmm. personally like when I'm on my downtime I'm really on downtime (laughs) (laughs) so that's that's the thing so is that the main thing that you've been up to 
this so that was two weeks ago. Oh, two weeks ago, okay. So what have you been up to this week? Yeah, that's not like current news. That's two weeks ago. But as you can see, still affecting me. Well, that's um, funny, isn't it? With situations like that, just as a, a brief aside before you tell us about this week, I do feel that when you have an interaction like that, it does stay with you. And you would have to be very strange to have a to have a situation like that to have a not quite an altercation but I suppose a back and forth like that and to then afterwards be like it's gone from my mind I've moved mm-hmm. on it, it will yeah. weigh on you yeah it was definitely a confrontation of ideas mm-hmm. which you don't have that much anymore yes I agree you know we all hang out with people that think the way that we think mm-hmm so it was so jarring for me because it's just not something I'm used to. I'm used to like down with the patriarchy. High five, girl. But <laughs> <laughs> I'm used to. I'm not like, oh, patriarchy doesn't exist. Like, so I think that's probably why it stayed with me. Mm-hmm. Of course. No, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. But this week I've been up to stalking Naomi Osaka, the tennis player. I'm a very, very big fan of hers. If you follow me on Instagram, or if you follow the Jules Phoebe Instagram, you'll see that because I, I post her as much as possible. And she recently just won the US Open, mm-hmm. which is amazing, an amazing, amazing achievement. And I don't know if you know, but she's the highest paid woman in sports right now. Wow, I didn't know that. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, she's the highest paid woman in sports and she has a really interesting story. So like if you follow her, you know that she's been trying to bring a lot of attention to Black Lives Matter. The fact that she's won, you know, for me, I'm just so excited about the future generation because what she's done is shown that you can be political. Yeah. Have a point of view and a position that is not popular and you can still be successful. I totally agree. And I think actually it's quite interesting because, you know, there always used to be that thing kind of said about Beyonce, that Beyonce wasn't really black because Beyonce never really spoke about being black. But who said that though? Oh my God. I I know people who have said that 100%, but I think that that was often a critic. Are they black? Oh no, of course not. But then there were black people who thought it as well. And I think that it was because... she's not black? Black people said Beyonce is not black? I think that there were people who felt that she was very disengaged on that frontier. But I think she that you have disengaged. To, and I think that yeah. you have to look at that in the context of what it was. It is only probably in the last five, maybe 10 years, but I don't even know if I'd give it 10 years, that you can say we blurred the lines between politics and celebrity. And I don't think that there was space. I think it is the younger generation. It is the Naomi Osaka's who have pushed this rhetoric forward or pushed this movement forward. I kind of disagree because, especially with sports, and when you think about, you know, Muhammad Ali, when you think about the athletes that held their fists up during the Olympics, Mm -hmm. there's always been a relationship between politics and sport. Mm -hmm. In terms of music, perhaps it's a bit different, but I think that you've always had people like Colin Kaepernick. Of every generation, there has been someone that has said, I'm willing to sacrifice Mm -hmm. my career because I believe in equality. Mm -hmm. That's a great point. They were sidelined, right, for Mm -hmm. some time and then maybe brought back into the bosom of Mm -hmm. society and pop culture. What we're seeing now that is different is that someone like Naomi Osaka, who is, you know, 22 years old, she's not going to experience that social exclusion. Mm Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. So I think that's definitely something that's different. But I think there's always been a relationship between celebrity and politics, but it was not welcomed. And someone like Beyonce, she decided to get into it when it was becoming a bit more sexy. Possibly also fair to say. I mean, I, I know that when she kind of released Lemonade, that that was one of the big kind of unapologetic homages to you know the diaspora to the culture um but you're right and I'm kind of detracting from it by bringing celebrity in a broader sense into this but I just think it is interesting that now it is not the turnoff that it once was now I feel like sponsors investors brands almost see that as a positive thing if someone is active engaged and talking about these things they aren't as you said you know essentially the pariah that they once would have been. And in terms of like brands like Nike, right? And that's one of Naomi's sponsors. Mm -hmm. Brands like Nike, I don't know how they do it, but they always end up on the right side of history. Mm -hmm. So there is something at Nike where they always just stand by the right thing. And there's a language for it in marketing around like politics and engaging people on their beliefs. And Nike do that really well. I look at Naomi and I'm like, I think what they've done, what her and her family have done that is so epic is that, you know, she's half Haitian and half mm-hmm. Japanese. Right. So she was born in Japan, but then when she was three years old, they moved to the US. Okay. And her parents have really brought her up in an environment where she's proud of both her Japanese roots and her Haitian roots. So even though she's got dual citizenship, so she's an American citizen, they always had that vision that she would play for Japan. Oh, amazing. So now because she's playing for Japan and because she is of dual heritage, Uh like that's what's led to her getting the endorsements that she has because she's so unique. Mm -hmm. For sure. Right. And so that's why like she's the top paid female athlete. It's only Serena Williams that's behind her in endorsements. Wow. That's amazing. She made 30 plus million in 2020. Good for her. That's amazing. I love to hear. She's smashing it. And that's an important lesson. Like when you have that courage to live authentically, Mm-hmm. you will be able to make meaningful connections with people and like maybe make a difference. So what she's doing now is making a difference. She's making young people feel like, yeah, I can stand up and say my opinion. I can be myself. Just because I'm in this sport doesn't mean I need to assimilate. I totally, I really, really see that. And I actually think it's interesting because you saying that is very similar to what our guest Amelie said last week you know, and we we spoke about having the conviction to speak up from within your institution. And mm-hmm. even if you are nervous about doing so, you have to, I think Amelie said it really well when she said, you know, I was seeing the medical community or the healthcare community condemning the cops in the case of George Floyd, but we were not holding that mirror up to ourselves. And I think that in a similar way, you've got something happening with Naomi Osaka where she is saying well I'm going to draw attention to this within my sphere of influence. It's such a win because they thought oh we're going to have this racially ambiguous person so we have like a non-white person that's successful in the next coming generation and she has just smashed it by being so pro-black, anti-racist, all about equality, like Day in, day out, every single day, like after the games, when they ask her questions, just handling it so well, going to the ceremony with her head wrap, representing the hate. <laughs> no, they didn't see it coming. No, I think that you're I think that you're probably right. I think that they didn't. What you're seeing with Naomi, it really is an extension of Serena Williams' legacy. Serena and Venus very much so paved the way, but 
that they also understand that in order to proliferate that legacy, you do have to make sure that the generation coming after also feel empowered to speak up, speak out. Exactly. And Naomi was like, I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for Serena. And we should be holding that up. Like Mm -hmm. white feminists should be holding that up as an example of like feminism, Mm -hmm. women supporting women. It should be a model that we're all trying to aspire to. But I don't hear Mm -hmm. the white feminists. They're quiet. (laughs) Where are you guys? No, it's true. It's true. And I think then you see, so in the context of Naomi, you know, using her platform and using her airtime as well, for want of a better word, to really continue to amplify these cases and these situations. But you also then have people like Lewis Hamilton. And I know that you and I were talking about this briefly before we started recording and about the T-shirt that he had worn, drawing attention to Breonna Taylor's case or lack thereof, I suppose. Um, yeah, I'm so proud of Lewis Hamilton. Like, it means so much to me to have like a black British success story. Mm-hmm. And obviously, you know, it's Lewis Hamilton, it's John Boyega. Like there are a lot of people that are using their platforms to highlight racial injustice. Mm-hmm. And it's so funny because we were talking about like the Formula One saying they're going to like investigate him wearing the T-shirt saying arrest the cops that killed Breonna Taylor. Mm-hmm. And so what do you think about that? Like, why would they even do that? Why would they even do that? And part of me thinks that there can be no aspect of you that thinks that this is a good move unless you are dog whistling to certain people. The dog whistle point, I think, is an important one because it might not be negatively impacting their bottom line, but clearly they're uncomfortable with this guy. Every single podium he's jumping on, He's wearing Black Lives Matter. Mm-hmm. Every opportunity he has, he's talking about, you know, anti-racism. So there must be something about this that they are not comfortable with. F1 have an end racism okay. thing going on. But basically the F1 drivers are wearing end racism t-shirts. Okay. Right, so their whole way to end racism is wear the end racism t-shirt, right? And then and you have the t-shirts made. <laughs> Because I, I have no idea. Fashion and these kind of like tokenistic gestures have such an overlap, but I digress. But that's what the internet is saying. The internet is like, wait a minute, you can't have an end racism campaign. And when somebody is saying, arrest the cops that killed Breonna Taylor, mm-hmm. you are now saying you need to investigate that message. Wow. I feel like, I I mean, obviously, this is probably fundamental knowledge to some of our listeners. I'd like to believe that some of our listeners are also like me and they're like, oh, I just thought it was cars. But (laughs) in a very real sense, then I do think that that potentially speaks to, you know, we've said this on the podcast before. I think Europeans, certainly British people always want to look at America as being worse than. So like Mm -hmm. something as superficial as an end racism t-shirt is like a tick the box exercise ultimately, like end racism, but end racism how? Because I think that oftentimes Europeans are very uncomfortable with their colonial history and the harm that they have basically proliferated. So maybe they thought that they were just going to get away with a t-shirt and then this would lose traction. It would run out of steam or whatever. But that's what I think they thought. I think they thought, you know, this will all be done in like a week or like two weeks. But obviously, there's still some momentum around like Black Lives Matter and what's happened with Breonna Taylor. I do think it's worth doubling down on again, like 
that those three cops, it is three, it's not four, I don't think, who shot her to death in her own bed while she was sleeping for a crime that she did not commit, a crime that she had nothing to do with, still have not been arrested. They face no charges. And it's a very strange, I mean, I do think that there is this mentality within a lot of the justice forces in the US where they close rank to protect each other. But it is insane that this particular murder, I mean, let's call it what it is, has gotten such global traction and yet still no one has been inclined to press charges against these three men. Yeah, exactly. So that's really the issue. And that's what Lewis Hamilton is trying to draw attention to. Well done to him. I have nothing Mm. but respect and admiration for anyone that uses their platform to benefit other people. Mm -hmm. It's such a sacrifice and it takes a lot of courage So like, well done to him. Definitely poor move from F1. I also wanted to have a chat with you about the shapewear for pregnant women. Mm -hmm. Gate. Gate. (laughs) (laughs) Baby shapewear gate. Um, Yeah, baby, baby shapewear gate. I personally, like, I mean, I've never been pregnant. You have not been pregnant. Neither of us are parents. So I know that my kind of realm of knowledge of this is somewhat limited. I think that there are two things ultimately to discuss here, because obviously the reason that this is kind of being discussed in the media today, we record this podcast on Monday. So this is just kind of blowing up now is because Kim Kardashian, as part of her shapewear line, has introduced pregnancy shapewear as well she's not the first to do so you know spanks are the what's the word when it's like they're the og essentially of shapewear. but the the, the spanks have a pregnancy shapewear yeah they have pregnancy shapewear and then like any of your supermarket brands who do it as well will also do Mm -hmm. pregnancy shapewear so Mm -hmm. m&s will do it if you are at home in Ireland, like Dunn stores will do it, Primark will do it, all of the, like there will always be a version. And I think that there was some kind of comments and I guess discussion around it that was talking about how a lot of it is to do with comfort. So when you are carrying a baby, because so much of that weight gets carried in your lower stomach, it can put a strain on your lower back. And the thing is as well, I think that sometimes discussions or rhetoric like this really makes me realize how incredible pregnancy and childbirth is and the actual physical toll it takes on the human body and I know that when my sister-in-law Aileen was pregnant she is someone who her whole life has slept face down but obviously once she got pregnant she couldn't do that anymore so essentially what she had and they tried to buy different pillows and you know sleeping positions and everything but what she had is nine months where she just basically did not sleep at all And you think, actually, nine months is a really long time. That's a huge sacrifice to make. That's a long time to be tired and in discomfort. So I know that some of the talk around the shapewear had been like, actually, part of that is to alleviate the pressure that your body is under just by virtue of weight distribution. But I don't know. What what do you think about it? I think this is really about the unrealistic expectations that are put on women like the fact that shapewear exists is because there is a standard of beauty Mm -hmm. that shapewear can help you achieve yeah that that is true and so that's the fundamental thing and then it is like you said it's such a sacrifice and you know it's not always an easy time pregnancy is not always like glamorous and easy so the fact that you then have to squeeze yourself into your spanks 
that is stressful, but everyone has the right to do what they want. So if you do want to still have like a banging shape and you're doing your like maternity shoots and you want your bump to look a certain way, like that's completely fine. But ultimately it's about the fact that women are under a lot of pressure to still continue to look fab Mm-hmm. when they're pregnant and that's that's the cultural shift because before it was like oh yeah you're pregnant like you just go you sit at home and eat all day but now you need to be looking hot when you're pregnant I think that that's always been there I think that that pressure that expectation you know that kind of your glowing quote-unquote period is mm. you know very much so it's like fetishized almost and I think that very few women will lean into the whole I'm pregnant, so I'm just going to sit at home and chill and, you know, not worry about myself. Because I think that when you hear women talk honestly about pregnancy, it is like I was very uncomfortable. I found it difficult to move. Like I felt not myself, even though there were periods of beauty within that. You know, you you can be appreciative of the fact that I am growing another skeleton and also be like, I have terrible heartburn and I'm not allowed to eat any things that I usually like eating. And I think that that's part of the issue as well, is that I think the reason that I don't really take issue with the idea of shapewear is that by virtue of us having a discussion about shapewear, it at least allow like no amount of compression tights, for example, are going to get rid of the fact that you have a baby bump. However, if it's... No, but it smooths out your shape. Oh, no, for sure. But what I mean is that like... But I'm more happy to say if I have an ugly pregnancy and I know that there is something that on an occasion, say I'm pregnant and I'm not feeling it and I know that I'm meeting you for dinner and I know that you are going to be looking lovely and I'm going to feel like a beached whale. Is there some small item of clothing that I can put on that makes me feel better about myself, which is the department that I put shapewear as a whole into? Then I think that's great. Obviously, you are so correct in saying that the bigger issue is the dismantling of this institution where women ever have to be attractive for anything other than their own desire to be attractive. Exactly. And I think like, you know, I personally am a fan, like whatever you need to do to make yourself feel good, go and do it. So that's not something I'm against. I'm not like against shapewear or against shapewear for pregnant women. But I have noticed, especially on social media, that there is more of an expectation of women to still be super glam. Like before, yeah, natural glow, but now mm-hmm. it's like six inch heels when yeah. you're pregnant, mm-hmm. right? That is definitely something that I've noticed in like the last five years. I remember when like Beyonce, I think it was when she was pregnant with Blue Ivy and it was like the first time I'd seen someone be pregnant and still be like so full on, like yeah. wearing high heels, like so full on. And I'm thinking whoa like yes if that's what you want to do that's great but chances are you just want to be in bed I think that the difficulty is all of us are doing some version of that and if whether you're doing 10% and I'm doing 20 or you're doing 80% and I'm doing 50 like the fact is we are all putting money into it as is Jamila Jamil and I don't think it doesn't make it right. It doesn't make it right. But I do think that it shows some awareness about that fact when you are decrying other people, because I don't get eyelash extensions, but I don't have a problem with people who do. Like I worked with a woman who never let her partner see her like not done up. She always wanted him to have an idea of her 
as you know put together basically and even though that wouldn't be for me it actually has no impact on my relationship with my husband if she is doing that you know if she gets up every morning and she puts on her false eyelashes before she and her husband have a cup of tea that's actually minimal impact on me I would go so far as to say zero impact um the problem is that we have to dismantle the structure as a whole before we can be like deciding what is and isn't okay Mm. personally my perception or like the way I look at I weigh I look at it as a platform that's trying to dismantle the structure as a whole Mm -hmm. like I'm completely complicit and if I were to be pregnant and I'm going out out, out, hell yeah, bring me the shapewear. Oh, absolutely. So I feel that you can acknowledge that you are complicit in that, mm-hmm. but then also acknowledge that, damn, like it's super unfortunate. But then also, of course, because Kim Kardashian is such a big star, mm-hmm. like with New Lion being released, it's just an opportunity for people to discuss it. I think it just gives it visibility because I would never have been thinking about pregnancy shapewear if Kim didn't release this. No, and the thing is like as well, let's not, any of us pretend that bras, for example, are comfortable because a lot of the time bras get to a certain point in the day and they are uncomfortable anyway. So it's but there not- is a free the nipple movement. Like there's a free the nipple movement. Yeah, but it's also uncomfortable to not wear a bra. Like past a certain point in the day, you need some support. But you should be able to have the choice yeah. to okay. wear one or to not wear one. And you shouldn't be judged if your boobs sag and you shouldn't be under this pressure to go get mm-hmm. implants. And the thing is, we live in an aesthetic driven society. And actually, it's interesting that you bring this up because I was talking to one of my friends about this during the week because I get Botox and I have had filler before and I've got braces at the moment. And as you know, and as I've spoken about before, you know, I get all of the laser resurfacing, I get the chemical peels, I get laser hair removal, I get my nails done. Like I watch what I eat, I try to work out, I do the whole kit and caboodle. And the problem is, and I do say problem and I mean problem, that I also recognize that I am more loving when I feel better about myself. Like I am genuinely a nicer person to be around. I feel when I feel good and, Mm. you know, that's not necessarily a good thing all of the time. Because I also think that when you start to delve into what kind of pressure this whole societal expectation has on women, what it also leads to is financial disparity. Because not only are women earning less than men, we're now also spending more money on physical upkeep and grooming than men are. So you're on the back foot there as well. I just Yeah, it is a tricky one because you want to be an advocate of, yeah, come as you are. Mm-hmm. but then it's not really like the reality that we live in for me I find it difficult to have a commentary on things like this when I know that there is absolutely zero chance of me stepping out of this system because I like it oh she loves it I love it <laughs> I love, love it, it. <laughs> you love it and you've had like such a crazy influence on me because now I'm like oh damn I need to go get an Invisalign <laughs> I go see my dentist like every week now. Mm, Honestly, I am like, I'm in discomfort because of these braces, but I'm loving myself. Like, yeah, I'm seeing the change every day and I'm like, oh my God, this was such a great shout. Like amazing. Smiling. But then also I do think there's something in like British culture that is like, when you see someone striving towards self-improvement, 
you look at them sideways. Mm-hmm. That's like the British culture. It's like, oh, why would you want to strive for more? Why would you want to have good teeth? <laughs> it's like British people want to have bad teeth as like a status symbol. What's that quote? It's by John Berger and it's talking about vanity. And I think that there was this really interesting thing I, I read once about, I am not so vain that I can't admit that I'm vain. Because some people, I think with vanity or with like, say, self-improvement, as you've called it, the only way that it is palatable to be put together, and I don't mean this in a thin specific lens, I mean like as in looking beautiful, having your hair done, getting your teeth whitened, wearing makeup, whatever the case may be. The only way that that is palatable or acceptable is if you pretend that actually you're super low maintenance. What's unacceptable isn't the act of doing it, but the act of admitting that you do it. Mm-hmm. And there's a quote from John Berger that says, or Berger, I'm not actually sure how to say it. You painted a naked woman because you enjoyed looking at her. Then you put a mirror in her hand and you called the painting vanity, thus morally condemning the woman whose nakedness you had depicted for your own pleasure. And I do think that that is like, that's it in a nutshell. You can be striving to be super fit, super glam, super gorgeous. But the second you say, oh, listen, it takes a lot of work. Like I get my nails done and I book in for my next appointment. People are going to be like, oh, she's obviously thick. Exactly. I think the perfect like summary of that is when people are like, you're like, oh, wow. Like, how come you have such great skin? And everyone's like, oh, yeah, water. Yay. And it's like, <laughs> no. Like, Eight hours Yeah. And I think Janae Aiko, I think she said something about this where you've got people that are saying, oh, it's just water. And then she's like, this costs a hundred grand a year. (laughs) 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 This is money. This is money. Well, I saw a tweet the other day. It was like, good morning to everyone except girls who don't admit that they get lip fillers. So let me take this opportunity, guys, to let you all know I have had lip filler done before, but I haven't had it done in over a year. The reason my lips look so good right now is because I've got train tracks. So, <laughs> You're so crazy. You're so crazy. <laughs> Guys, thanks for listening to thanks listening to listening. us. Share the podcast with a friend. Uh, follow Jules and Phoebe on Instagram and let us know what you think of t- this week's show. Yes, if you've got any recommendations, again, with regards to imposter syndrome, let us know. And we look forward to hearing from you. Bye.